Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's been 10 days since we last convened, and what has happened in our soccer world? The U.S. Confederation Cup hopes, the Dutch's chances to qualify for Euro 2016, Jurgen Klinsmann's prayers of winning the support of U.S. soccer fans, all down the tubes. Along the way, we reached 20 teams for Euro 2016, the World Cup qualifying campaign began in South America, and Mexico took booked a ticket to Russia, albeit for 2017. Welcome, everybody, to this midweek edition of the World Soccer Talk podcast. I'm your host, Richard Farley. Thank you very much for joining us. Our main purpose here is going to be to preview the return of the Premier League with the ninth match day of the season just days away. But first, we're going to look back at an international break, which thankfully was a little bit more than just the typical idle friendlies. Lawrence McKenna and Kartik Krishnayer joined me to talk about that. And Lawrence, I'm going to be really honest with both you and Kartik. I tried to avoid soccer as much as possible during the international break. I need some time to reload, to to fire up the batteries a little bit. So I'm going to put this on you. Tell me everything that happened in the last 10 days. It's actually uh, lucky you came to me because I'm way more interested in international football than I used to be. Um, USA suck. Guys, um, I just want to let you know. <laughs> I did manage to hear about that. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's no cave. The there's no avoiding that. There's no avoiding that. Okay, you want something new. Um, okay. Uh, Albania went through, which was monumental, uh, in, in obviously in Europe, um, that the fact that they are uh, still uh, a, a relatively difficult team to beat in the competition because of the way that they play and the fact that they beat out a lot of other people in the group who uh, look like they could have, who beforehand people didn't really give them a chance against means that it's pretty impressive to see Albania there in the first place. And I think Albania are especially happy about beating Serbia there. Um, so there's something particularly satisfying about that within Europe. Um, we'd also say that England, the constant narrative over here is that it's almost constantly, they, they got 30 points. You know, that means they're not going to win it. Right. Uh, and everyone just bored about that. Uh, and then everyone seems to be tipping France. Am I right? Well, how's that sound to you, Kartik? Um, yeah, I guess a lot of people are tipping France at this point, which is surprising. Uh, they are hosting the Euro tournament, but they uh, uh, they, they still seem to be a work in product uh, in progress. A, a sort of a a national team in a certain degree of transition under Didier Deschamps, but Karim Benzema's in incredibly good form at, at the club and national team level. You see guys like Griezmann 
uh, and Kabai and others that, that have typified this this current generation of French players that seem to be firing at a high level. So, yeah, I, I guess the two new narratives are that uh, that France is going to win it, they're the favorites, and that Belgium, despite what looks like the most impressive squad on paper, are not going to win it because they're Belgium. We can discuss <laughs> that later in the show. I, it's it's uh, a simple, lazy kind of anal- yeah. bit of analysis on my part. Tell you who isn't going to win it, Holland. Holland is not going to well, win it. Well, they are not definitely not going to win it. Mm-hmm. Well, we're going to devote yeah. the whole middle part of the show to talking about Euro 2016. And I imagine we're going to get there pretty quickly because uh, I have this beginning part of the show scheduled to talk about the United States versus Mexico. And, and by this point, anybody that's interested in this topic has probably read so much on it. There's nothing new that we can say. Uh, so this is a little bit of an act of hubris on our part, assuming that you all care what we have to say about the United States and Mexico. Uh, since I barely care what I think about it, I'm going to throw it to you, Kartik. What are your lingering feelings about Saturday's game now that we're three, four days removed from it? The U.S. losing 3-2 to Mexico, uh, losing a chance to qualify for the Confederations Cup in 2017. Well, coupled with the failure of the U23 team to qualify directly for the Rio Olympics the same day uh, with a loss to uh, Honduras, and now they're going to have to go to a uh, playoff, a two-leg playoff with Colombia from Comneball, it it was a pretty dark day for U.S. soccer. I mean, my my takeaways are pretty simple and straightforward. The United States is playing worse football, but the results are, are really appalling too, but the United States is playing worse football than any time since the early 1990s, the worst football they played. Uh, less possession, less serious scoring chances, more uh, less understanding between the players that are on the pitch at any time since the team really solidified in the run-up to the 94 World Cup, which the United States hosted. Even the 98 World Cup, where the United States finished 32nd out of 32nd, or two teams, they played, they had very good spells of football in that tournament. They were only outshot, uh, uh, barely outshot in that tournament over the course of the three games. And then 2006, I think the United States, you could argue, outplayed Italy, the eventual world champions, and Ghana in that tournament. Mm. This dip began uh, with Cristiano Ronaldo's goal against Portugal. Uh, by, by Cristiano Ronaldo setting up Valera, right, for Varela uh, uh, for, for, uh, for the goal in uh, the stoppage time in the World Cup. And uh, the United States has been badly outplayed by Germany, uh, had less possession than any game in the United States history, uh, badly outplayed by Belgium, outplayed in every game of the uh, CONCACAF Gold Cup by CONCACAF opposition with the exception of a match against Cuba, even outplayed by Haiti, outplayed by Panama twice, and now uh, absolutely run off the pitch in a competitive match by your arch rivals, Mexico, and seemingly in a bad formation, uh, and, and the, the, the player pool is getting older. So in summary, I think the United States is at a really lo- bad low point, and it's time for some serious introspection and discussion of where we go from here. We know what the problem is. Clearly, not enough good technical footballers, not enough guys that are tactically adept, and uh, a kind of a mishmash of guys in, in the camp, which was never the case before. The United States always had very high uh, team spirit and, and energy. Now, that, that's an issue. So, uh, a lot to chew on. Yeah, it's, the way you describe it is kind of a, a perfect storm of terrible. Uh, you've got underperforming yeah. players... You've got a manager that hasn't distinguished himself for quite some time. Uh, The pipeline doesn't look like there's any relief in store, and the results on the field are diminishing. I I think, for me, what was so telling about Saturday's game, it was the first game that the U.S. has really tried in all its efforts to win since Belgium at um, Brazil 2014. 
the, the Gold Cup kind of made some compromises to allow players like Jeff Cameron and Bobby Wood, others, to stay in Europe and fight for their jobs and really want to give players like Ventura Alvarado a chance to play. Obviously, it didn't go well. Criticism well-deserved, but the criticism came with a caveat. This time, it really was all hands on deck, and you saw players like Kyle Beckerman returning to the team, Jeff Cameron playing in central defense when Jurgen Klinsmann has said he sees him more as a right back or even a central midfielder. Demarcus Beasley brought back into the fold. And although the game was close, and there was about a 10 or 15-minute stretch at the end where you really thought the U.S. could actually steal it, the tactics were wrong, didn't adjust to what Tuca Ferretti put out there, the actual play of the players, with a couple of exceptions, Jeff Cameron notably, was not very good. And the team just didn't look like it's on the same level with Mexico right now, which I don't think is necessarily a slight because Mexico, Kartik, is a very talented team. But the fact that they've regressed to this point is the issue. Right. And Mexico, of course, is a team that conceded four goals in the Gold Cup against Trinidad. It's a team that got outplayed by Panama for 60 minutes with Panama down a man. So... It's uh, it's this isn't a vintage Mexico side either. Although I think Chicharito Hernandez finding some form at Leverkusen has really helped them. I think Guardado uh, is now not having to to, to, to necessarily uh, uh, pull the strings on this team as much as he he had to this past year. And and I like this formation. I like the way Ferretti set them up. I think that that's the way Osorio is going to play with Mexico. By the way, I think that might have been the why mm. why he made that change. He he's he's transitioning into the next manager from uh, Herrera's five three two three five two, however you want to look at that, uh, to the four three three. This this kind of transition period with the interim manager, uh, you're you're making you're making provisions for the guy coming into the job. But uh, the United States has been better than Mexico for much of the last decade. Uh, uh, full stop. Now they're not. They they don't even seem to be able to to, to keep maintain possession for more than uh, a couple spells here and there against them. They were outplayed by Panama twice, as I said in the Gold Cup. Uh, they were outplayed by Haiti in the Gold Cup. And now this was a game which the manager and technical director himself, Jurgen Klinsmann. I want to point this out because a lot of people say the criticism of him is unfair, and I ten- tended to be very much in his corner for the last four years. Mm-hmm. But he circled this. He said we have to qualify for the Confederations Cup. We have to qualify for the Summer Olympics because we failed last time. And qualifying for youth tournaments was always kind of an afterthought with the United States because the United States has had a good has had good success at the youth level, qualifying for youth tournaments, getting out of the group stages of youth tournaments. Now all of a sudden it's becoming very difficult and very challenging. He identified these two benchmarks, very clear benchmarks, and then went on record after the Jamaica game with our friend Neil Blackman, who you and I both work with, Richard, and said uh, to Neil's question, the Jamaica game where the United States was eliminated from the Gold Cup, that the game in the playoff, whether it would be against Jamaica or Mexico, and it turned out to be against Mexico, will be the most important game we play in like a three-year period uh, between World Cup and uh, the end of World Cup qualifying, between World Cup 2014 and end of World Cup qualifying. And they and so he had months to prepare for it and lost and came out with a odd formation and put, play, playing players out of position. Poor Jermaine Jones ran the socks off, but he's coming off a double hernia. He's turning 34 next month, and he had to run like mad for 120 minutes chasing shadows. So... That's that's the that's the situation. I mean, there's mm. no other way to describe it. It's it's a dire situation, and when you empower one person to be the technical director and the manager, and this is something that when we get to the discussion about Jurgen Klopp and Liverpool, that maybe will be understood at club level or national team level, you run into these sorts of problems. Lawrence Klinsman 
was kind of accepted as I don't a, a bit of a darling at the last World Cup, mostly because people had such low expectations for the United States because of the group they were drawn in. Uh, particularly in Europe, he was seen as somebody that was maybe the person that can finally crack this U.S. nut as far as this huge market that seems to be coming around to soccer and has so much success in other athletic endeavors. So after hearing after hearing us be so disparaging of Klinsman and um, seeing what the reaction has been to the U.S.'s failures, what do you think the perception of Klinsman is right now in England and the rest of Europe? I mean, I think in Europe it's slightly different. Uh, you do you do see somewhat of a cultural disconnect. A lot of people talking about how key he was to being, uh, you know, to the whole reformation of the, the German game and how, you know, he studied and uh, they'd taken a long time over this and he was key to forming things and the way that they were formed. And I think for that reason, a lot of people still think, well, you know, it's, it's, it's probably a mismatch of the culture that he's bringing, the ideas that other people are bringing. I think at times there is a little bit of um, who's this outsider who's telling us how to do it sort of thing. Um, mm. And some people Slightly, are a little bit... Yeah. Some people well, are very are, upset about that. Yeah, I mean, that's part of it, though, is that I think, you know, you witness the same thing in England. And uh, I think Barney Renee put it really well the other day that it's it's almost difficult to acknowledge when someone else is doing it better than you and you're, you've not been doing it great for years. And sometimes their direct um, idea goes quite against what you've done in the past, which was basically be incredible cheerleaders for the team, but not particularly progress them through time. Mm. I think that's the perception from Europe. Mm. Um, I don't know if it's true, because actually I think it probably lies somewhere between the two. I think Kartik's right, but Kartik hasn't, I mean, you know, it was a great piece of analysis, but I don't think you've particularly named exactly what we think the problem is there. I think that's that's part of it. Is that actually, it is all about the perception of hmm. Klinsman. If people continue to perceive him as not right for the job, he will become not right for the job. And um, it's partly that it's not just one big nut to crack, is it? It's a, it's a whole series, and they also have a bowl of them in the states. And the fact is that he was part of the progress in Germany, and that was really great for him. So, what is it in America that makes a difference? And could it be that you're trying to almost deal with a continent? of of, of, uh, of American development hmm. and that it's not exactly the center of where things are right now whereas if you go to Germany there's a real you know like there's a reason to pull young players in there those sorts of things so there's a big difference between the pull of America and the pull of Germany well, the U.S. has had this one really big humbling loss on Saturday. Uh, 3-2 looks okay on paper. It wasn't so good over the 120 minutes. Definitely more than a goal separated those teams in terms of performance. From your point of view, Lawrence, an ocean away, do you think uh, Do you think maybe the U.S. fans are overreacting? Right now, the pitchforks are definitely out. I mean, you got, I, I feel sorry for a lot of managers. I just think everything seems to be judged by such swinging binary terms. It just hmm. seems it's so bizarre to me. Is it like someone said to me the other day, oh, you must be so glad that Rogers is gone. Like he was terrible. And you're like, what? And you just think you, you can either, you can, you know, it's, it's for some people, it's almost impossible for it to be one way or the other. Cause you're either supporting or you're not. And you know, you're either into a USA or you're not, or you're not, or Jürgen is either great or he isn't. And I think some people like Kartik are probably way more nuanced. 
But that's mm. not everyone in the conversation because some people literally go, well, you're either winning the games or you're losing them. Yeah. I think a lot of people are going through the same progression that Kartik did right now. Uh, we had a lot of people that have been against Klinsman from the get-go, found him a little bit arrogant and a little bit dogmatic in what he was trying to teach uh, U.S. culture, found that a little bit insulting. But those people that did give him, give him a chance are going through the same progression as Kartik is right now and really reevaluating the things that have happened, particularly over the last two years. Uh, but let's move on a little bit. Kartik, uh, in the last week, you have had numerous chances to either react to or comment on uh, the U.S. games, U.S. performances, uh, be it through your other show, Divers and Cheats, or uh, using another avenue through Rabble.tv, uh, just commentating on the games. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what you've been doing with Rabble.tv over the last week? Yeah, so we had uh, Divers and Cheats post-game show, immediate snap reaction with Robert Hay and myself to that Mexico game and also looking at the, the Honduras U23 loss and, and, and trying to look uh, at what happened in the match and analyze it tactically. Then had uh, another Rabble show unaffiliated with World Soccer Talk uh, with Neil Blackman, our friend from the Yanks are coming the next day looking at the loss and, and, and really looking at what, what lies ahead for Klinsman. And, and we both have identified the game against Stephen Hart's Trinidad and Tobago team. Stephen Hart, a favorite of, uh, of Lawrence, incidentally, former Canada manager, uh, as the probably the, the, the final straw for Klinsman. He, he either has to win that game in Port of Spain, or which is a World Cup qualifier, or more trouble ahead. Then we did the Costa Rica-United States game. You can go and listen to the archive. Matt Lichtenstadter, who used to be on this show, and I dissecting every little aspect of the United States player pool, youth results, former youth results, the progression of players, uh, that were on the 2005 and 2007 Youth World Cup teams, U20, U17 World, World Cup teams. And, and then um, Divers and Cheats on Thursday night will look at Major League Soccer's impact on the United States player pool and if perhaps the return of players to Major League Soccer has handcuffed Jurgen Klinsmann mm. or if it's the opposite and, in fact, uh, Major League Soccer is producing very, very good players that he's overlooking, or maybe it's even a case of uh, guys not getting the right technical and tactical training at the club level, and then Klinsman not knowing what to do with them when they get to the national team level. Or maybe it's all on Klinsman. Well, what a, whatever the case, we're going to discuss that. Hmm. Well, Kartik is an example of what a lot of people are doing with Rabble.tv, and it's part of the reason that we keep talking about the product, in addition to them sponsoring this show. Uh, we really do use it a lot here at World Soccer Talk. We have game commentaries. We have shows. We do believe that it's a new way that you can augment your television experience. Rabble.tv is a place you can listen to match commentaries from real fans while games are being played, and it works really simply. All you have to do is tune into your TV, hit the mute button, and then head over to the website, Rabble.tv, to listen to soccer fans providing their own call. And if you want to, you can create your own account and start your own broadcast for your own team's games just by signing up and switching on your microphone. You can listen to the broadcasts on your desktop, through your iOS app. Now you can listen through your mobile browser also. Sign up today at Rabble.tv, where, if you want to, it's your team and it's your call. Gentlemen, I think the main focus across the world, not in the United States or Mexico, of the international break was Euro, Euro qualifying. Uh, Are you going to say Jurgen Klopp then? Yes. Well, actually, that was probably the bigger focus in some ways, at least uh, if you if you judge it by your timelines. Uh, mm-hmm. Any mention of Jurgen Klopp right now still sparks a ton of conversation, anticipation for Saturday's first game. We'll talk about that in the next segment. But, uh, Lawrence, the big story out of Europe, Euro qualifying the Dutch after their loss on Tuesday, actually their loss or 
uh, Turkey's win over Iceland in Turkey, either of those uh, situations would have guaranteed them going out of Euro 2016 before the tournament even started. Uh, what's your reaction to it? This kind of fall from grace from third place at the World Cup a year ago to now not even qualifying for Euro- Europe's first 2014 tournament. Losing the manager that they did. Um, possibly then replacing them with a manager that needed more time, needed uh, needs to have his own set of players within there. I think a huge part of it is that he still has almost it's, it's a previous generation in there. Um, and, you know, having spoken to a number of people, there are some guys in there that are difficult to manage and don't look up to every manager that they've been under. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of people found extreme irony in the way that Robin Van Persie was the one who scored the own goal, hmm. uh, which didn't really help them. Not that those um, two things you just said are connected in any way. No, I was just linking sentences. No, it's just cr- chronology. That's how chronology works. Yeah, that's how time works. Yeah. And I think that's part of it, is that actually they're finding... Again, it's, it's growing pains in a way, isn't it? Um, and you're almost glad that that happened. Because, I, I mean, part of it is, I think a lot of people think progress happens very in a very linear fashion. And I'm not always sure that that is the way that it, that it is, you know? Mm. And obviously... Everyone says, you know, well, you judge progress on the football pitch and it's all about the wins and there's only one column that matters, et cetera, et cetera. But, I mean, there's actually a lot more there to to judge. And I think especially with Holland, we're seeing that right now that they underestimate uh, what the task is within Europe, especially as a lot of people are now talking about these smaller teams in inverted commas getting in. Mm -hmm. Those guys for years have been on the fringes because a lot of people made sure they were on the fringes. Because it didn't benefit them. Mm-hmm. And it, the fact is that now the hierarchy is changing. Some other teams are suffering because of that. And it, you know, that's partly down to being ill-equipped or not arrogance, but just sort of, I don't know, I, it slightly is arrogance, I'd imagine. <laughs> and Kartik, I think the last two World Cups have really done a disservice in, touching, in telling uh, the Dutch tale, at least as far as where they are in their progress as far as a footballing country. Uh, in 2010, obviously very famously got to the final, but also very controversially with Bert van Marwijk playing a style that the the rest of Dutch football and culture didn't really agree with. And then in this last tournament, another good finish, third place under Louis van Gaal, but again, dramatically changing the way that we're used to Dutch teams playing. And each time after these tournaments, they tried to go back and play a more traditional Dutch way. And each time they've had to come to grips with the reality, the reality of their talent level, the reality of their performances outside of those two World Cup runs. And so for me, Kartik, this result while a little worse than I thought would have predicted at the onset, wasn't totally surprising because in the bigger picture, I don't find it that inconsistent with what the Netherlands has been over the last eight years. No, I don't find it inconsistent at all. I mean, I think uh, the, the, the Dutch, in terms of, of style and, and, and uh, scintillating play, really peaked during the group stage of the, of the 2008 uh, Euros. And, mm. and this particular group of players, I mean, it was Robin, it was uh, uh, Van Persie, Huntelaar, Schneider, uh, de Jong, and, and of course, uh, Mark van Bommel also, who, who's since retired. Uh, though that, that group uh, really, and they still had Dirk Kau, who was such an important player for them, at that point, uh, playing at, at a high level, and uh, and I, I think the end of Ruud van Nistelrooy's run also. So, 2010 World Cup was an aberration. I mean, look, they played a very negative style and got through. The 2012 Euros were more indicative of where they were. You put them in a group with Germany, Denmark, and Portugal, uh, two superpowers in European football and one very good footballing nation in Denmark, and mm. they're they're not competitive in any of those three matches. They not only lose, but they're not competitive. And then I think what Louis van Gaal did is he saw the kind of uh, defensive talent uh, 
if you want to call it talent, that he inherited from Burt Van Marwick uh, and, and, and realized he could play on the break, play on the counter with a couple of the players that he inherited. And, and he found some good young players like Memphis uh, Depay that he could, he could bring into the squad. Uh, but still, when it came down to it, they really depended on, on uh, the, the play of a guy like uh, Nigel de Jong breaking up plays in midfield. And Van Bommel was gone by 2014. But, and then getting goals on the counter from Huntelaar and Van Persie, who have both scored a remarkable number of goals for players at the international level. And who are still scoring goals. They scored the two goals in that game against Czech Republic. Those two guys. But uh, this has been coming since, I would say, right after the Euros in 2008. This is the culmination of about an eight-year, seven or eight-year cycle. Hmm. So Lawrence, why why so much attention to the Dutch? Why are we paying so much attention to their fall and not Greece, a, a more recent major tournament winner who finished last in their group? Is this just our ongoing love affair with the Dutch? And if so, where does that end? Well, it kind of goes against what we know about or, or think we know about the Dutch, doesn't it? Whereas with the Greeks, it's kind of there's a very different narrative there, which is they were lucky to win it in 2000 and what was it, 2004? Yes. Yeah, um, but I, but know, I would play a very that, negative Greece, style of football. But Greece got out of the group stage of the last two major tournaments. Continue. I just want to point that out, and Holland did not. But what 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 I'm what I mean by that is that a lot of people perceive it as Greece being very lucky to mm-hmm. win that tournament by playing what they call negative football. Um, whereas you know the narrative with the Netherlands is well, they play total football at one time, so you know they they must be doing this for a reason. Um, and there's the perception that there is some form. There's, there's a there's someone who's operating from above, kind of going, "It's fine, don't worry about it." But it is slightly that all these ideas are maybe overextended in a number of countries, and England's national identity has taken it down the wrong route. The irony is that Barcelona and Spain have built their identity on what the Dutch were teaching at one point, which is yeah. uh, interesting to see that they, you know they haven't had the same level of success there, mm. and then. Uh, you know, essentially the, the people who have been most self-reflective in Europe um, at different times and then, you know, managing to peak at just the right time um, are are doing the best. Although I think Raphael Honigstein made a really good point the other day that if Mario Götz hadn't scored that goal in the World Cup final, we'd be talking about a generation that was the almost guys for Germany. And that's how that's the fine margins between because had the Netherlands gone through, would we be saying, well, you know, they're lazy you know, it goes with all the other things we know about them. Robin Van Persie doesn't really try. You know, they, I thought a big thing for me was they didn't have Robin in there. And I know another, another, a number of other analysts, analysts look at that and sort of point to that as well. Um, I think there's a lot to be said for the Northern Europe, uh, mostly colonial nations at times, having somewhat of a, I don't know, I don't want to call it comeuppance, but sort of... Uh, cultural clash with what's going on in football right now and their ideas being overextended, overused and clashing with the equality that is trying to be enforced within within uh, UEFA and FIFA right now. And a lot of people are struggling with, with somehow yeah. looking at that because it forces them to look inwards and look at their, their nation's past. And, those and that's what's most interesting about Albania getting through is that at one point this was a country that was going through genocide. I mean, it wasn't just Tirana that was celebrating. It was Pristina as well. And, yeah. you know, it, there's a number of Kosovans within that Albanian side. And it's something that we just seem to forget. The international football is an incredible spotlight for those kind of things. But, you know, the guy who flew the, the flag on the drone into the stadium uh, was arrested before the match uh, and put away to, to not be able to interfere with things. 
because he was seen as I don't know maybe somewhat of a um, a figurehead for, for for the national pride or the, to, you know to, to what extent I I I want, I want to throw this out here to what extent does UEFA have a responsibility to keep uh, Serbia and Albania out of a group together uh, not pair Denmark and uh, Sweden maybe potentially in this playoff avoid those kinds of uh, cultural clashes I mean is it is there a responsibility or you just let it fall where where it does and Serbia and Albania ended up in the same group for qualifying and it caused problems. I suppose for political reasons, you maybe have to let the two go side by side to prove what the current state of affairs is. I think it was uh, someone the other day, I can't remember who it was, but they were basically saying how unhelpful some of the comments about Serbia are. Because, you know, you can't you can't um, make an entire nation from just 11 men or a crowd within a stadium. And they're probably, you know, having spoken to Serbs and dating a Kosovan um, Albanian myself, like, I know from different sides that there's more nuance to this than just two nations hating each other. And the problem is football pits them directly against each other. Um, and, you know, it's either win or lose. But fortunately for Albania, they lost against the Serbs, but won overall. And that was incredibly uh, satisfying for Lorik who said post-game, you know, they might have beaten us at home, but they'll be the ones watching us play in France next summer while they're drinking beers, watching TV. Mm-hmm. So... You know, there's that. You know, there's. An, if you want to write the narrative, I'd imagine it exists in Europe right now because there's a lot of people who seem to have forgotten the colonialism that Europe once went through and how well, poorly Europe managed to slice but, things up. Well, I mean, some, well, someone but, said to so, me the other day, which is an interesting idea. Imagine the team Yugoslavia would have, and I just I didn't know what to reply to that. <laughs> well, I mean, it, but similarly, though, we, we're 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 in a position now since we cover the the British game, the English game where I already noticed the BBC because Northern Ireland qualified and they qualified in, in some style for this tournament, uh, winning their group, winning a very difficult group. And Wales qualified where you're already seeing uh, the responsibility of the press in Britain that has been so kind of jingoistic about pushing the England narrative now have to take a step back and say, whoa, there are other home nations in a major tournament. Now we have to give some degree of equal time. And I think that's a healthy thing. I, I think this is going to be very healthy, this tournament, having Northern Ireland and Wales in it and Albania in it and, and other nations like that. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm, I direct the Home Nations football show, which is, you know, Ian Wright, uh, Ewan Roberts, Kevin Gallagher and Jerry Taggart. Four funny guys who were part of a generation where there was a clear hierarchy in the Home Nations. And it was always, you know, the, the pull is still essentially that England are going. And it's almost like, well, our buddies are coming along as well. And now it's not like that. But a huge part of that has also been, I think for Wales, the fact that they have Gareth Bale in another country actually is quite helpful to them. Because it's almost like, well, there goes our boy representing in another place. We can't see all this football, but we know he's doing all right comes back, does well for his nation. So there's a lot of things that I think run side by side. And I think you're right, Kartik. I mean, it's going to be great to have so many home nations there. So I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what it's like. Albania and Iceland both qualified for their first major international competitions. As Kartik alluded, Northern Ireland and Wales both also qualified too. They'll join England as home nations at France 2016. Uh, gentlemen, speaking of England, let's transition to our Premier League preview part of the show, otherwise known as the reason why we're here. And I think the reason a lot of people are going to tune in this weekend, although in the United States it is at a very inconveniently early time, is Jurgen Klopp's debut, the first match on Saturday. Liverpool is visiting Tottenham. Uh, we received news right before the show that Joe Gomez is going to be out for the season so that's one hit to uh, Liverpool's depth but Felipe Cachinho sounds like he is going to play in this one after pulling out of the Brazil squad last week uh Lawrence 
talk about your feelings in anticipation of your club's new and, uh, as we've seen over the last two weeks, incredibly highly regarded manager. That was an interesting thing. Uh, even the way you phrase that question is quite interesting. That's such an American way of phrasing it, isn't it? I'd never come across, uh, to be fair, I'd not been to many press conferences before I came to Gold Cup in 2009, but I'd never come across a press conference where I saw someone say, uh, ask the question like this, talk about the goal. <laughs> and that was the question in the press conference. And uh, there's a big, di- I wonder what it would be like if Jurgen Klopp was revealed in America, because I just think there would be slightly different coverage of the guy. Um, and it's just fascinating, these reveal in England. And someone did, had a great tweet the other day. They said, I really enjoyed your preview of what Jurgen Klopp's going to do for Liverpool based on 12 games in Bundesliga, a Champions League run, and five vines. And you sort of think, yeah, I mean, he's not, Liverpool have barely kicked, well, you know, they kicked a ball in training, but they've not kicked a ball on the pitch yet. Um, you know, there's, there's incredible excitement around Anfield. Uh, Liverpool isn't, you know, really great place to be in terms of your football now that Jurgen Klopp's there I think Brent, you know there's no hard feelings towards Brendan Rodgers but it, it's going to be interesting to see what he does with this side um, he has an incredible amount of injuries we should probably say that within the team but also a very talented technical squad um, he's going to need some time but I'm glad that what he said in his opening press conference which was much less scripted than what Brendan Rodgers had was just I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be given time to you know, have a recognisable brand of football. And he seemed very relaxed about it. And already the players are speaking in a positive way, which makes you kind of feel a bit sorry for Brendan because, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't all that awful. He just wasn't what Liverpool were looking for. And I know that there is a, there's a feeling that Liverpool can do something, but hmm. no one quite knows what. Kartik, you, you have been uh, upping Spurs all season. So this has to look like, <laughs> from your point of view, a very difficult uh, first fixture for Klopp. Yes, it is. And, and in fact, it's such a I'm so excited about this game that I've, I've just aborted today my my trip to Orlando for the Orlando City, New York City game the previous night because it's going to be difficult to get back and get up in time for, to watch this game live. So I'm giving up Pirlo and Lampard and Kaká to watch Spurs and Liverpool. That's commitment. That's commitment to the Premier League. A lot to do with Jurgen Klopp and a lot to do with my excitement about the Spurs side. Very difficult opening fixture for Klopp, but we know their new manager bounces. I think this is a difficult position for Spurs to be in, too. So many players that uh, were, were on national team duty coming back from the international break. Early kickoff. The early kickoff after an international break is always very awkward, and for some reason it always seems to feature big teams, and that's part of the Premier League reasserting itself as, okay, we had our little fun with the international stuff. Now, when this is serious club football, so they always have matches like this, you know, Arsenal versus Manchester City, Chelsea versus Liverpool, those sorts of things. So we've got Spurs and Liverpool, and I think it's going to be interesting to see how Spurs, with their young squad, react to Klopp and Liverpool and a team that I assume, again, I'm making assumptions based on Klopp's history, not on the, the personnel with Liverpool currently is going to be pressing high up the pitch, is going to be very energetic, and is going to want to make an impression for their new manager. Mm. Lawrence, what do you think is a reasonable expectation for a Klopp in Liverpool uh, this weekend? Uh, to play better football, um, to play a brand of football that maybe um, we see Liverpool just slightly open up their game a little bit. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how they press, like you say, a, a side that most people are championing right now. Um, and I think it, what, more than anything, it's going to be interesting to see how the Liverpool players just react to having a different manager around. You know, it has been three years, uh, almost three years at Liverpool now. Um, 
and that, you know, there's something really fascinating about that as well. I think the the narrative that just seems to have disappeared with Brendan Rodgers, and the new one that seems to be in place under Klopp, um, that everyone seems to be embracing. Um, well, I guess the interesting thing with Klopp is, you know, we don't we don't know how it's going to translate to the Premier League. We don't know, but we do know that there are there are certain things that we can expect, and I think for that reason we're going to see some interesting football. Uh, but still, no one. I mean, what's the formation going to be this weekend? Yeah, so we'll find we'll find out in a couple of days, right? Uh, will James Milner play? You know, uh, because everyone at the moment, all I have is conversations where people go, "Well, Milner's not that kind of guy." Well, Moreno's not that kind of guy. Well, uh, yeah, but who else on the roster is? They're probably going to play, right? Well, I, I think it's also though that you find out what kind of guy they are. Yeah, you know, if, you, and if they, you're a good player, you don't just have one style and just be and, that way. And so as Raphael Honigstein said, sometimes good managers have a way of bringing out in players what we haven't seen before. So it is probably fair to say, wow, Milner doesn't look like he fits, but maybe Klopp will make him fit. Well, that's also part of it, I guess, is that actually, you know, uh, credit to Brendan in a sense. He's got a squad of players that are, there's a lot of talented players in there, you know. Coutinho's mm-hmm. in there. Lallana's, Lallana looked great for England. Yeah. You know, Benteke's in there. Firmino, Firmino is not even used so far this season. Yeah. So, you know, well, let's see. Lalana could be somebody that I think could really benefit from uh, the change. Um, of course, it's not the only match on Saturday. It's just the biggest one. Chelsea will host Aston Villa. Jose Mourinho today was given a 50,000-pound fine and a suspended one-match ban for his comments post-Southampton. This will be his first return to the touchline since that happened. Palace versus West Ham, very good game on Saturday, fourth versus sixth place. Manchester City versus Bournemouth, Vincent Company is expected to be back. Sergio Aguero and David Silva should be out. Southampton versus Leicester, another very good game. Saints have obviously been improving. Leicester continuing to sustain near the top of the table. Watford versus Arsenal, Watford's D Defense getting really tested by that Arsenal attack. On Sunday, Newcastle versus Norwich. Steve McLaren really needs this one. Unfortunately, he'll have to do it without Tim Krul, who was out for the season after tearing an ACL. And then on Monday, Swansea versus Stoke. Uh, Gary Monk needing to right the ship with Swans. Uh, two matches I haven't mentioned. Kartik, I want to go to you first. West Brom versus Sunderland, a match that we otherwise really would not care about. This is something we would devote about 30 seconds to uh, in our weekend review show, except... This is the debut of Sam Allardyce with Sunderland. Yeah, Sam Allardyce against Tony Pulis. It, it, it's going to be interesting to see how the team responds to Allardyce coming in. Uh, the assumption is Sunderland now uh, has a very good chance to stay up because Allardyce is their manager. That means someone else is going to get sucked into the relegation fight. It could be Bournemouth because of all their injuries. Hmm. Uh, and and uh, even though I think Bournemouth has a good enough squad and a, and a great manager, they would stay up otherwise. Or it could be West Brom. So keep an eye on this space. Uh, Tony Pulis has done done miracles before with teams, but he always needs a big budget. He needs to spend money. And uh, something – West Brom has not looked like a vintage Pulis side yet this season. I think they're, they're not defending as well as Pulis teams t- typically do. And uh, going forward, they've got very little, and, and that's maybe why they didn't sell Berahino. So I, I'm concerned about them. Yeah, it, it, this is interesting the point you bring up. I think implicitly, without the whole kind of uh, zeitgeist talking about it, we had slotted Newcastle, Sunderland, and Aston Villa as the three teams that are most likely to go down at this point. So much so that we hadn't really been talking about other teams. Even as teams like Stoke struggled to, to find this new identity that they're trying to craft, we had those three teams as kind of relegation fodder until proven otherwise. 
well, if if Sam Allardyce lives up to his reputation, which team falls into that bottom three? I think that'll be a very interesting story over the next month. Uh, the one other match that I wanted to talk about a little bit in a little bit more depth than we uh, are talking about Sam Allardyce's debut is Everton versus Manchester United. You know, it seems like every week we find a reason to talk about Manchester United. I think it's because we don't really have a good feel as to what Manchester United is. So every match ends up being this kind of opportunity to have a really telling experience. But Lawrence, it's the same thing with Everton. I think at this point, we're all convinced Everton is a very good team, but they still have not proven to us that they can be a real threat to the top four. I think their draw against Liverpool maybe inspired some more doubts. But here is another match at Goodison that gives them another opportunity to show that they maybe can uh, revert back to the form of two years ago. And from my point of view, that's what makes this match so telling. No, very good point. Um, I think the way that they've been playing their football, you know, uh, the, the main narratives in there being Barkley, Stones, um, Lukaku up front, and a number of other guys who seem to be um, in the cast as well at Everton is is fantastic. You do, again, worry about injuries with those guys and how deep their squad is after that. Um, but I, I think the main thing with Everton is that they, uh, like you say, that the derby was a good litmus test because Liverpool were perceived to be doing pretty poorly at the time. And actually, for both sides, it seemed like a fairly good compromise. Mm-hmm. Um, they've, they, they have put other teams to the sword. And I think, you know, they were given the opportunity to do the same with Liverpool and just didn't. Um, and that's where you sort of wonder is the consistency with Everton, how they managed to get that. And whether it's the tactical way that they set up that will let them down ultimately in the consistency. Because there will be some teams that look at it and say, well, we can take that on. Or, you know, if, if we can take Barkley out of the game, or we can take... Lukaku out the game, then we take away from the main assets that those guys have, and maybe that's part of it. Is that they're they're not tactically inflexible, but they certainly look like a side that if you play um, aggressively against them, then you're going to be able to essentially negate the the best of what Everton bring. Lawrence mentioned uh, John Stones. Roberto Martinez is hopeful that he will return this weekend. Seamus Coleman is practicing again, training again. He should be in the lineup also. Uh, Lawrence also mentioned the idea of compromise. And I think, Kartik, a lot of fans will want... Everton to get to a point where they're no longer compromising. When a team like Liverpool that's struggling comes to Goodison, they don't have to revert to this, these historic tropes and say that one point is a good point because at some point Everton is supposed to push forward. And this weekend presents an opportunity because as we always talk about with Everton, when you have a team that's willing to control the game against them, to hold the ball, it really plays to Everton's kind of latent strengths in that they can get all of those skilled athletic players out on the counter and nobody likes to hold the ball more in this league than Manchester United. Yeah, Manchester United has done a very good job of keeping possession, but it hasn't always been positive possession. I have to say, in, in the last 10 days while we've been gone, and it's been international break and a lot of focus on, on, the, on the U.S. Uh, woes and, and a lot of focus on, uh, obviously, uh, the Euro qualifying. And we talked about the home nations in Northern Ireland, Wales, etc. qualifying. Uh, one subplot, something that I've had talking to folks has been the disappointment among Everton fans, and there's a lot of Everton fans here in the States that I talk to about that result against uh, Liverpool at, at Goodison two, two match days ago, or the last match day, two weeks ago. It, it, we, we viewed it in the context of Rodgers getting sacked, but there, is a, there, there seems to be a real feeling among Everton supporters that they once again left an opportunity on the table to cement themselves as a top, uh, a top shelf club. And that 
Martinez, the, the criticism of Moyes was he couldn't get results in those games, right? He consistently could not beat Liverpool. Uh, mm. He would beat Chelsea, Manchester City, but he could never beat Liverpool. Now it seems like Martinez... there are games like this under Martinez where Everton is bossing the game, unlike the kind of shell that they would play in under Moyes, and yet they still can't get the result against Liverpool. So I think this is a very important game psychologically for Everton supporters also. Uh, There there is a... uh, uh, If if Martinez is tactically pragmatic enough, the the scenario you laid out is perfect. Manchester United keeps possession... And then Everton, particularly with a guy like Kone now uh, back back at full fitness and, and bringing a guy like Aaron Lennon off the bench, they can counter with anyone in this league. They might have the best guys to break on the counter in this league other than Manchester City so and, and Arsenal, other, other than the top two teams. So it'll be interesting to see if Martinez is willing to go that route because you have to assume you're going to forfeit possession against this Manchester United team, particularly with the likes of Mata and Rooney in the midfield. And we talked about, I, I think it was on our last show, we talked about kind of the dual role of those two guys both playing in the midfield and there essentially being only one football for those two guys. So Manchester United has a lot of the ball. Maybe it's not all positive, pr- productive possession, but because you've got two guys like that who take a lot of touches, uh, Rooney's slower than he used to be, but they're both very good on the ball, both very good technical players. Manchester United is probably going to hold the ball more than any team in this league. Well, that's the script for Saturday's game. We'll have to see how it plays out. That one will kick off after the headlining act of the weekend, which, of course, is Jurgen Klopp's debut at White Hart Lane, the first match of the eighth, the ninth match day in the Premier League. Uh, we'll be back on Sunday with a review show talking about the nine games that happened this weekend. There is a Monday game we'll have to preview also. Uh, but until then, for Lawrence McKenna, I'm Richard Farley. Kartik? Enjoy your football. The World Soccer Talk podcast is produced by Christopher Harris and Richard Farley and is a production of worldsoccertalk.com. For more information on the show, check us out at worldsoccertalk.com or subscribe through our iTunes feed. You can follow World Soccer Talk on Twitter at World Soccer Talk or follow the show's hosts. Lawrence McKenna is at LawsCast. Kartik Krishnar is at KKFLA737. And I'm at Richard Farley. 